Hi, I'm Clement Liu. Welcome to the second season of Just Sustainability. At the conclusion of my previous conversation with Kathy Jordan, we had discussed the possibility of doing a special episode about the COP26 meeting held in Glasgow in November of 2021. This is that episode. So stay tuned to listen to what Kathy, who led the University of Minnesota's delegation to Glasgow, has to say about what happened at the meeting. It was really cool to learn about what the delegates spoke about, what were some of the good things coming out of the negotiations, what was disappointing, and what Kathy believes are some areas that need more attention in the global conversation about our response to climate change. So, without further ado, here's Kathy telling me about her experience of COP26. Thank you for joining me on Just Sustainability again. Uh, last time you were on the show, we talked about possibly doing a special episode uh, after you got back from Glasgow to talk about COP26. You're back from Glasgow, and we're doing that special episode. So, uh, how were things? How was Glasgow? Wow. Well... I have so much to say about that. Um, you know, it was a great uh, learning experience for me, very eye-opening. And mm-hmm. um, also the first time I traveled <laughs> with the pandemic, um, and that was interesting. Um, yeah. But I suppose um, uh, being in a huge conference facility with um, tens of thousands of people who had tested negative each morning yeah. was about as safe a place as you could be. So um, <laughs> that, that managed, we managed that pretty well, but I'm excited to, you know, tell you more about what COP26 is or your listeners more about mm-hmm. what it is and what, what emerged from it. Yeah. So maybe that's a good place to start, right? Uh, I suspect m- many of the, lis- the folks that are listening would be familiar with the right, the conference of the parties, but some might not be. So like, what, uh, what is the conference of the parties and, you know, what's COP26 and what happened in Glasgow? Yeah. So, yeah. So I attended week one of the UNFCCC COP26 um, as the Nominally, the delegation leader from University of Minnesota, UMN, sent 29 badged Ringo observers over the two weeks. So what does all that mean? That was a lot of language, (laughs) a lot of lingo, Ringo. What does all that mean, right? So, all right. So UNFCCC is the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change. Mm -hmm. Um, COP26 is the 26th UN Global Global Climate Change Conference of the Parties. Mm -hmm. Uh, COPs are annual convenings of the signatories of the 1992 Earth Summit in Brazil. That was sort of like the the first COP. It wasn't called that back then, but that was kind of effectively launching the the Conference of the Parties. Mm -hmm. So Conference of the Parties, what are parties? Those are um, nations um, that were the signatories uh, coming to negotiate a climate agreement each year. Um, Over the the years, in addition to... um, the, the signatory type people like the climate dip, diplomats and the national delegations, this event has uh, become a, it's become a source of attraction for mm-hmm. many what are called civil, so, civil society actors, um, which include things like artists and journalists and business representatives, academics, um, variety of other sectors. So, so much so that recent editions of the COP have attracted like 40,000 participants from all over the world. Most of those folks are not negotiators. They are what are called observers. So observers, um, 
you know, aside from national delegations, which have the the greatest level of influence over the negotiations, Mm -hmm. there are a number of international non-governmental organizations or NGOs, and then other sort of actors that are allowed to observe the the process through being issued badges. So Mm -hmm. to be badged means that you are allowed in the blue zone. The blue zone is the part of the venue where the negotiations are happening. There's also a green zone, which hosts um, events for the public, essentially. Um, I also use the word Ringo, (laughs) Um, very jargony, but Ringo is one of several types of observer constituents. um, And the the, uh, R.I., Part of it is research and independent, and then NGO. Um, so research and independent non-governmental organizations. And you know the other most powerful observer groups um, at COP are the the ENGOs, the environmental NGOs, mm-hmm. the um, LGMAs, which are local government and municipal authorities. There's mm-hmm. TUNGOs, which are trade unions. Youngos, youth organizations, um, and bingo, business and industry, non-governmental organizations. And each constituency is issued a certain number of badges and has sort of a a process for deciding who gets to be badged and and go. And Mm -hmm. um, the United States sends a lot of observers and a lot from the Ringo um, sector and University of Minnesota this year sent 29, which is unusual. We usually send 10, five and Mm -hmm. five over the two weeks. So we had a large delegation and very happy that 18 of those were graduate students um, who I think took a lot out, you know, away from the experience. So that's cool. Yeah. So that's a little bit, yeah, it's a little bit about what, what COP is. Yeah. And so I guess leading into COP, what what were some of the expectations? What were you, what were you hoping would happen or what was, uh, you know, what were some of the things that kind of the, the climate, uh, I guess, uh, advocacy community, community was hoping would happen. Yeah. Well, let me give a little bit of background about like what happens leading up to COP. Um, sure. So it's not like everybody shows up at this big event and, you know, it, it all takes place there. That's actually been um, in the works for months, if not, you know, the whole year prior to mm-hmm. that. And in this case, it was really two years because we didn't have a COP in uh, 2020 because of the mm-hmm. pandemic. So um, coming into the COP, the negotiating parties uh, develop what are called NDCs, Nationally Determined Contributions. Mm-hmm. Um, and then when they when they come to COP, they are presenting those at least as a starting point. Um, they're basically saying, here's what we've decided we can do as right. you know our country. And then in the first couple of days of COP, they have a world leader summit. No observers are allowed. It's kind of behind the scenes, you know, mm-hmm. negotiations. Um, and, and then observers are allowed to have interaction with the negotiators in observable sessions, which are sort of plenaries um, mm-hmm. throughout the next two weeks. But we're, we're kind of getting more updates as opposed to really um, observing the right. negotiations. And there, there are some folks who've earned the right to be in, in those negotiations, but generally most of the observers are, are not in there. Right. Um, a lot of it is behind closed doors and they're doing some wheeling and dealing and, you know, that kind of thing. Um, the, um, the most important expectations I think was 
a, a recognition that this COP was the most important COP since COP 21, which was Paris in 2015, right. which resulted in the Paris Accord, um, which is where we said, okay, you know, in order to survive as a planet, we need to get down to no more than 1.5 degrees centigrade warming over pre-industrialized levels, um, preferably, right. and at the outskirts, you know, two degrees or so. Um, but anything more than that, we're, we're in trouble. Right. Um, so building on the Paris Accord, the aim of COP26 was to finalize what's called the Paris Rule Book, rule book which was yeah. how are we going to operationalize this goal that we set as a global community. And so there were four, I would say, strategies or goals around that main aim. So one was to really step up mitigation efforts. The second was to strengthen adaptation and resilience. So kind of two sides of the coin there, you know, the mitigation, preventing future uh, you know, greenhouse gas emissions, and then adaptation, how are we going to live with what's already baked in to the system based on our pre prior behavior. Right. And then the third goal was to mobilize um, 100 billion US dollars in climate finance. Mm -hmm. um, and then the fourth goal was to enhance international collaboration, which was really recognized as the strategy to be able to achieve the first three goals. Mm -hmm. um, right. And then yeah, you, you said, so what did, what actually happened? Um, so I would say that there's, um, maybe a half dozen or so, six or eight main positive outcomes that came out of this. Okay. The exist, well, going into COP26 with the existing NDCs, the nationally determined commitments from the last time, um, those were presented, right. the calculations would say if we, if we did those, and that's all we did, but we did those well, we would be on a path mm -hmm. to more than three degrees warming, which is right. pretty much disastrous for the planet. So um, right. COP26 NDCs allowed for an iterative improvement. Every If everything went perfectly, now we'd limit warming to 1.8 degrees centigrade, which isn't 1.5, but right. it's a whole lot better than three. So that's right. one, you know, even better than two, <laughs> even better than two. Right. And so that's the um, positive outcome. Now, of course, everything has to go perfectly, right? We have to do all of right, the things right. that all of these countries said they would do. And of course, there's questions about whether everyone promised things that they would have the capacity to do. So there's a lot of, you know, right. conditions on that. So another positive thing was that 130 countries vowed to halt deforestation by 2030. Mm -hmm. And then 105 countries pledged to reduce methane emissions by 30% by 2030. Mm -hmm. um, U.S. and China promised to work together, even though, of course, politically, we're having our differences. Um, and it's a bit of a tentative relationship. Um the Glasgow Climate Pact, which is the final official global, global climate agreement, explicitly states mm -hmm. the importance of phasing down unabated coal power. And this is an advance right. because previously there had been an unwillingness to name culprits of climate change. Um, the language was kind of vague. And so uh, this is interpre interpreted as the beginning of the end of fossil fuels. Um, so at least we've said, hey, mm -hmm. you know, we're in this problem. We're in the state mm -hmm. because fossil fuels are the culprit. Um, mm. Huge that you know, huge political victory there in terms of being able to finally say what the what the issues are. 
Um, right. Another positive thing I would say is that indigenous peoples succeeded in getting language on indigenous and human rights integrated into Article Six of the the Pact. Mm-hmm. And while while this is a huge accomplishment, there's there's no legally binding responsibility to adhere to this language. So what one thing you're hearing right. me say is that there was like some big steps forward, but conditions on that, or big steps forward, but there's a counter argument, you know, kind of thing. Um, right. There's more steps that could be taken. Yeah. Or there's there's a pro and a con, you know, to a lot of the things that I'm right. saying. Um, and then the last thing I guess I would say is a positive outcome was that there was um, there was now emphasis for the first time on things that had not received attention in previous COPs. So adaptation mm-hmm. um, was one. Finance was big mm-hmm. uh, this year. Yeah, yeah. Apparently, it, it was not. I've not been to a COP before, so um, I don't have a basis for comparison. But what I understand was that much more attention was paid to finance as a, a necessary strategy. Um, yeah. That has been true um, well, in the past. And then equity was also um, something that received a lot more attention in the past. But I'll have more to say about that in a minute. What were you going to say? I was just going to like ask you to say a little bit more about that, right? So like, uh, I wasn't at Glasgow, but it struck me that one of the, the, the biggest sort of positive outcomes was much stronger commitments uh, about um, support from wealthier countries to lower and middle income countries when it comes to uh, adaptation. Yes, that got talked about a lot. Let me let me talk a little bit about what it means to have something paid attention to at COP. So, okay. um, you know, we talked about how there's the negotiations, all the behind the scenes stuff yeah. that the parties, you know, negotiating parties are talking about. Um, and there's a resulting agreement um, that comes out of that. There's the... Mm-hmm. Um, Blue Zone generally, which is uh, a huge conference venue (laughs) um, that the badged people are allowed into. And then there's the Green Zone where the public can participate in predominantly educational activities, um, typically for a fee. Mm -hmm. So um, 99% of observers don't know exactly what was talked about in the negotiations. We only know what the resulting pact was. Um, the mm-hmm. green zone tends to be more educational delivery of education to the public in the green zone, which I did attend for a day. Mm-hmm. There were a lot of conversations or I could see on the agenda and then the, the program that I went to, um, the sessions I went to did, um, address, um, they were addressing equity in a variety of ways and really trying to showcase this as an issue. Mm-hmm. Um, and one thing that I was impressed with was we were hearing directly from youth. We were hearing directly from um, small island nations. We were hearing directly from indigenous communities. Mm-hmm. And then um, in the blue zone, um, one of the main ways that um, conversations happen and learning happens is in the pavilion uh, hall. And so the pavilion hall is like this, oh my gosh, it's like a small city. It's this huge, huge, uh, imagine almost a field house or a warehouse kind of thing where they've built almost like a little city, like it's on a grid yeah. and there are um, like a, a 
block would be a square block would have four, you know, quadrants. And on each corner, there would be a um, room or a set of rooms, sometimes double decker, (laughs) um, first story and second story, um, where a country or an organization like the World Wildlife Fund or something like that would have space. They would be hosting that pavilion Mm -hmm. and they would have space for panel discussions and educational sessions. They might have a media room. They might have a hospitality room upstairs, for example. Um, and what, just an aside, one thing that I did notice was there was big differences in the lavishness of pavilions. So, boy, like the United Arab Emirates, it was like right. gold-plated. <laughs> it was really lavish. Um, and then and then you might have a small island nation or an African country where um, it was a, a counter with some handouts and nobody there to uh, staff it or have a conversation with. And so it was just a really dependent on who could afford to build out what kind of a pavilion and bring people there, you know, to to have the conversations. And that was all dependent on, of course, money. Um, But that pavilion um, city (laughs) um, was the place where lots of conversations were happening. Some of it was kind of unidirectional, you know, um, informing, you know, and directing information out to the attendees. Some of it was very conversational. Some of it was workshoppy. Some of it was an amazing chance to see Mm -hmm. and to have access to people who you never have access to, like out in the real world, like, you know, CEOs of, you know, big companies or uh, John Kerry or Secretary Holland or, you know, these sorts of things. I was like, wow, you know, Um, you'd you'd be walking through the city of pavilions and there'd be a mob of media and some security around someone. And it might be, it could be Greta Thunberg, it could be John Kerry. And, you know, people would just follow the pods to see who the celebrity was. But, But this was a place where lots of conversation and education was happening. And um, here we heard a lot about Mm -hmm. some of these things that we had not been hearing much about in the past, about finance, um, generally finance, but also the idea of um, developing countries supporting um, developing countries and, you know, the inherent inequities in um, the you know, responsibility and the mm-hmm. impact of climate change. Here's where we were also hearing more about indigenous knowledge and recognizing that, um, you know, something like 6% of the world's population is indigenous and yet they are successfully protecting 80% of the world's mm-hmm. di- biodiversity. And we ought to be, you know, we, we ought to be listening mm-hmm. and learning and protecting them. Um, and instead, you know, they are literally being killed mm-hmm. sometimes um, for being environmental activists. Um, so that's where we were hearing a lot. Um, I can't say that the final pact um, really reflects the degree of attention that these issues were getting out in the pavilion or in the green zone. And, um, mm-hmm. you know, that that comes from, well, let, let me tell you a little bit more about some of the reasons that are like, let less reason to celebrate. <laughs> so, you know, I talked about reasons to celebrate. What are some things that are like less reason to celebrate? So, um, yeah, you know, as I said, nations and communities that contribute the least to climate change are also the ones that bear the brunt of the, the loss and damage caused by that climate change. And that quote, loss mm-hmm. and damage priority area, that was something that was new. Um, 
as a way to address that injustice. Okay. And it was one of the most debated issues in negotiation rooms <clears throat> and out in the pavilions. And hmm. um, it resulted in, um, I guess, outraged interventions before the UNFCCC from dozens of under-resourced nations. They they did not get what they wanted right. or, in my opinion, deserved. Um, so their issues were very mm -hmm. much talked about, um, but the final decisions didn't reflect the degree of attention that this issue of loss and damages was getting in the discussions. So, yeah, I mean, can you say more about that? Like, uh, right, like, so like some of the examples of the discussions in the, the broader context, like in the, you know, the blue zone and pavilion uh, and versus like, right, like how it was excluded from the, the final uh, pack. Well, so... So I guess, you know, out in the pavilion hall, um, mm -hmm. you could, you know, any particular day, you could probably go to a session where the issue of climate justice was being talked about in some way. And even specifically mm -hmm. this idea of the responsibility of developed countries to the developing world might be being discussed mm -hmm. somewhere. But when you think about the fact that I think there were 503 delegates representing OPEC countries, you know, the oil producing mm -hmm. countries. And there were just a handful of delegates from island states. Mm -hmm. Like that's who's in the room. That's who's in the negotiations. Mm -hmm. And so there's a huge power differential and, you know, volume of voice um, in the room when you have that level of disparity of just number of, of vocal um, you know, vocal delegates. Right. Um, and who came was dependent on financial resources and access to the vaccine. It included mm -hmm. a lot of global South and island nations who had not yet, you know, um, had the opportunity to be vaccinated mm -hmm. um, and therefore didn't feel that they could travel. Um, and then I heard, some, I, I don't remember where I heard this or who exactly said it. I think mm -hmm. it was some some representative of a party that was in the negotiations basically mm -hmm. said, you know, parties are coming in with three priorities mm -hmm. um, or three lenses, um, politics, economics, and the environment. And the environment or climate was the third priority. Right. So we are still seeing the deprioritization of, you know, the things that are most important to be talking about at COP um, in favor of the you know, political, economic, global uh, community, um, and you're you're going to end up with you know decisions that then don't reflect the level of discussion that's happening yeah. when it's just an educational in an educational venue as opposed to a negotiating venue. Yeah, I mean, and that seems to be unavoidable given right the the disposition of the delegates, right? If there really is such an imbalance of delegates from say right oil producing company or countries versus uh right island countries, you're going to see a stronger emphasis on economics. If you see right like uh bigger delegations from say wealthier countries like the United States and like Western Europe you're going to see politics, right? Rather than uh, mm -hmm. if you have uh, more indigenous folks who, right, are more directly affected by sort of the environmental disruptions that are going to be coming with climate change. So, yeah, that, I mean, that's right. unsurprising. It's disappointing, but I guess it's sort of unsurprising. Yeah, and I, I, I do feel like um, 
in a way, my own both hope and cynicism were triggered yeah. <laughs> at COP. You know, there were times where I was like, wow, this is incredible. Like, look at 100,000 people on the street, you know, right. all these young people and, and that sort of thing. And then my cynicism would, um, would get triggered by uh, conversations where exactly what you said, you know, the, the political or the economic interests of the majority or the most powerful would outweigh the well-being of those with less power. And um, uh, yeah, I was pretty frustrated at times mm -hmm. by some of those conversations. And it really, you know, led me to kind of think about the, the context um, that all of this is happening in, which is white supremacy mm -hmm. um, and the domination of um, successful capitalist run countries and you know those sorts of things um yeah to the literally existential loss of um those countries who uh don't have those advantages and privileges yeah well and i think we, we talked about this like prior to recording but right it's worth noting that at two degrees um which i think you know is probably at this point, the best we could hope for, right? Like 1.8 degrees. It's still going to be the case that there are going to be entire island nations that will end up underwater due to sea level rise, right? Uh, yes, we have baked in certain consequences that we, because of the way climate works, mm -hmm. um, we can't undo some of those things. Um, we can prevent further tipping points and further, you know, um, damage in some ways. But there are certain things that are going to happen because of what we've already done. Mm -hmm. And so we need to be adapting, um, and um, that does take funding. Yeah. Um, and those countries who need to adapt the most are those that have the fewest financial resources. And the loss and damage conversation was really kind of a legal discussion about, mm -hmm. um, hey, just like in the court system, you know, when you've been done wrong, um, the idea of being awarded damages yeah. um, by those who have offended—that was, you know, that was part of the argument, and um, it didn't—it didn't actually win out in the end at this COP. Mm -hmm. um, but it will be interesting to see what happens next time. Yeah. Well, so let's let's talk about that. Like, what do you think the future holds? Right. So, like, we're coming uh, out of uh, COP twenty six, uh, right? With, uh, I think with some stronger commitments, with some agreement to revisit uh, contributions. Uh, what does that mean for like, you know, going forward, like uh, when it comes to COP27, given that, right, like, as you pointed yeah. out, there seems to be a broad disparity between what folks are talking about in the public areas versus what was happening in the negotiation, uh, the negotiation. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, well, I think officially, mm -hmm. what we will see or what the plan is, um, that has been being vocalized is that, you know, COP27 is going to be in Egypt. So it is moving to a more developing part of the world, mm -hmm. um, which will put an, uh, a spotlight um, on Africa, for example, um, which will be helpful. Um, but officially what people are saying is that there will be more ambitious pledges and actually, over the next year, uh, the, the parties have been charged with trying to um, ramp it up, you know, <laughs> basically don't wait until um, next COP or the COP after to um, make a new pledge, figure out how you can accelerate your 
commitment mm-hmm. now. Um, you know, go back to the drawing board now. So more ambitious pledges operationalized for how to cut emissions by 2030. That's like the goal um, going in. And then there will be, um, a, a, I think finance will will hold center stage. Um, at least that's what's what's being predicted. Okay. Um, and that idea of moving money from the developed to the developing world is what they're saying will be um, kind of on the table mm-hmm. next time. Um, so that's, that's kind of what we know, or at least what I know, yeah. um, about what's going to happen over the next year and going into COP27. I do have some, some thoughts about, um, I guess, other areas where there was less reason to celebrate where we might have an opportunity to influence what happens over the next year and what sure. happens at COP27. Can we dive into that a little bit? Yeah, I mean, I, I think, right, like... Uh, I guess this episode shouldn't just be about what happened and what will happen, but like how people can be involved or how people should be involved. So yeah, no, please. Yeah. Okay. So, um, so I'll talk a little bit about um, my personal lens Mm -hmm. of how I approach cops, something that I was listening for based on my own area of interest. So my area of interest is around the human nature connection. And I was curious how that would be represented at COP. Would people recognize that the human nature and specifically maybe even kids in nature connection could be a long-term climate strategy? So what I mean by that is that, you know, of course, you know, if we've got goals by, you know, doing something by 2030, Mm -hmm. we've got to be acting on the ecological systems directly in order to make those things happen. Right. But we, it's also true that we need to be sustaining our commitment to this over time, sure. over decades and literally centuries. Yeah. Um, and um, that means that we need to be investing in our young people's understanding. Yes. And we know um, the last time you and I talked, we, we talked about the idea that um, we don't get people who care about the planet and its fate if Mm -hmm. they don't feel a connection to nature Mm -hmm. and to the planet. And there is a prime time, not the only time, but the prime time for doing that is during childhood um, and um, adolescence. Mm -hmm. So I was looking for, is this conversation happening anywhere at COP? Long-term climate strategy is about investing in people. Mm Short-term climate strategy is about investing in, you know, the technology and the immediate um, ecological uh, interventions. Mm-hmm. And the answer to my question was basically no. Okay. Um, I found, um, of course, I wasn't in every session, but I, I really did, particularly on Nature Day, which mm-hmm. was um, one of which was the last day of my week there. Um, and I scanned the program, you know, to see how are people talking about nature. They were appropriately, but pretty exclusively talking about nature-based solutions as, you know, adaptation strategies. So, Mm -hmm. you know, how do we use wetlands, for example? You know, how do we, you know, restore certain things to, um, uh, you know, uh, prevent um, sea level rise um, affecting coastal communities, you Mm -hmm. know, those sorts of nature solutions. They weren't talking about the human nature connection. Um, I did hear, in one session that I was at, someone um, other than myself, um, where I was trying to raise this issue in sessions that I was at, but I heard one other person raise the human nature connection idea in a session that I was in. Mm-hmm. And then there was a 
um, an exhibit by the Eden Project, which um, was a beautiful, very green um, exhibit. Um, and the Eden Project is a UK-based um, social entrepreneurship and um, uh, environmental education initiative that has a global presence, but it's uh, it houses the world's biggest greenhouse, and um, they're doing some amazing work in all sorts of different countries, um, essentially on connecting people to nature. Yeah and um combating climate change you know in that in that process so um yeah so that's one thing that um definitely felt like it was a disappointment to me personally mm -hmm. but i also look at it as a an opportunity to influence the conversation moving forward mm -hmm. so um organizations that are nature-based organizations and um uh youth serving organizations, you know, you know, mm -hmm. really coming together to kind of have that conversation about how do we invest in human nature and specifically young people's connection to nature mm -hmm. as a long-term climate strategy. Um, I want to say one more thing about that before talking about something else. Sure. Um, if I can just round out this thought, like I, I want to really talk more about why is that important? Um, because it is kind of like this long-term strategy yeah. and, like the house is on fire, right? We got to be spraying water on the house. Like, why are we talking about, you know, well, shoring up the walls or something? Well, I mean, um, but oh. the, there's two reasons. Oh, go ahead. You can ask me a question, but I want to get back to two reasons. Oh, no, no, no. So I wasn't actually, it wasn't so much a question as I was going to, I guess, answer the sort of question implicit in the thing you just said, right? So it strikes me that uh, working with particularly children to think about the connections between humans and nature is really fundamental for thinking about adaptation, right? So like, I think, as we've mentioned a few times, like leading up to now that uh, we have baked in changes, right? Uh, I think a key element of our climate strategy is to think about how we adapt the way we live. Right. And which I think is unavoidable given that if we're going to make emissions targets, we need to reduce our emissions by something like 40% in the next 10 years. That can't happen without us really rethinking about how we relate to the world and how we live. And I think that requires us, and the next generation of us and the next generation after that to really think about, you know, how, how we, right. Like our place and like how we relate to place and like how, what our duties are to place and like, how do, how do we trade some of the comforts that are, we've associated with like technology with like, you know, the, the comforts and like benefits of nature that like we're trading some of that technology for, I think. Um, yes. And yet I want to point out that I don't think it has to be a zero sum game. Like it's either sure. technology or nature. Yes. <laughs> um, and we can talk more about that, um, in a minute, but yeah, I think you're exactly right. And then, and then I think there are two other things I want to say about why this long-term climate change strategy of human nature connection is important. Okay. One of them is a phenomenon that's called extinction of experience. Yes. This is a term that was coined by Robert Pyle um, to describe loss of experiences in the natural world over successive generations, mm -hmm. resulting in greater alienation of the human race from the rest of nature, just mm -hmm. kind of gradually happens over time. Um, to the point where the gradual part is sort of to the point where we don't even know it's happening, mm -hmm. you know, because like, it, it may seem like it's slowly happening within a generation. And of course we don't see what happened, what the world was like two generations ago. Mm -hmm. We only have our own reality. So we don't have a basis for comparison to say, wow, our reality right now 
is so much different than our grandparents. Biodiversity looks like this now, mm -hmm. when it could have looked like, you know, 70 years ago, it, it looked like this, but mm. we didn't, you know, we, we just don't see the, the direct comparison in our day-to-day -day lives. Um, and then the second um, sort of phenomenon is the demographic shift in particularly our country towards greater diversity. Mm -hmm. People of color and lower income folks face barriers to access and engagement in quality natural spaces mm -hmm. and nature-based programming. And the implication of this demographic shift is that the communities expanding most quickly and who will eventually compose the majority of the citizenry in the United States. Some people say that um, they use the term majority minority, mm -hmm. which I think has some problems with that terminology. But anyway, it's kind of common lingo, majority minority. These are the communities who are least likely to have had the types of nature-based experiences early in life that mm -hmm. ground that commitment to environmental preservation and climate action. Mm -hmm. So that would pose a big problem for or big impediment for the climate movement if the now majority of people, people of color, are those who have experienced challenges to nature connection, which affects their ability to connect with the earth and the fate of the planet. Mm -hmm. Now, I actually think I saw at COP evidence to the contrary um, in our young people, where there were lots of strong voices of youth and youth of color who would would prove that wrong mm -hmm. but that was also a very select sample of people mm -hmm. um you know the activists um um coming out to cop but if we just look at it in sort of actuarial terms in terms of the demographics and what we know about disparities of access to nature mm -hmm. um we have a problem. Um, you know, um, the climate movement has a problem because of these two phenomena, mm -hmm. extinction, extinction of experience and the demographic shift. And I want to be really clear. I don't want to be misinterpreted in um, suggesting that um, people of color don't have connections to land or to nature. Mm -hmm. That's obviously uh false, particularly indigenous communities, um, but also other communities that are um, newer, I'm going to speak in terms of the United States, newer mm -hmm. um, than our indigenous communities, like the African-American community, Latino community, etc. cetera. Mm -hmm. um, but these are the communities that have systemic challenges to access to quality nature and nature-based programming. So mm -hmm. despite cultural and historic connections to the land mm -hmm. and cultural, uh, you know, an ethos within their cultural traditions about land and nature, they can still face um, major barriers that do have an impact on their ability to uh, benefit from nature connection and how that translates into caring about climate action. Mm -hmm. Well, and uh, I guess uh, a way to, to maybe put that, that, uh, draws from something that uh, another guest on the show talked about is Janice Watts talked about how uh, wild spaces have been weaponized against people of color, right? Like um, yeah. they're, they're often historically uh, have been made dangerous for people of color, right? Uh, mm -hmm. Because of um, potential violence that's out there. Yeah. So, yeah, I was listening to an amazing webinar <clears throat> i want to say two days ago mm -hmm. i can't remember what day it was but um was listening to carolyn finney talk um about uh 
telling her personal story as an African American mm-hmm. um, and the story of her parents' connection to land um, and how that sort of cultural heritage led to her connection to land. Mm. But one of the things that she talked about was being approached by someone who wanted to do um, a storytelling project focused on trees Mm. and people's connection to nature through connection to or stories about trees. Mm. And um, she was the the person who had connected to Carolyn said, "I'm, I'm cognizant of culture and equity and and want to consult with you about what this could look like. And and Carolyn said, well, the first thing you need to recognize is that trees and the African-American community, the connection is lynching. And so that's your story. That's your story about trees and my community. Um, And don't, um, don't cover that up. Don't be overly romantic in telling stories of trees, Mm -hmm. tell the truth. Yeah. Um, And what that is sort of, you know, generational trauma um, means Mm. to current ability of African-American communities to feel safe in the woods and to feel an emotional connection to forests and things like that. It's a long history of trauma. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And and this is not right. I think, as you noted earlier, this is not to say that there isn't strong environmental commitments in communities of color. Like if you see the United States, right, the environmental justice movement came right out of, uh, black civil rights activists. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. But, uh, but it is still right. Uh, important to, th- uh, I think for us to address some of that alienation from wild spaces because of the, the history of violence that are associated, that's associated right. with them. I was going to say, I'm, I'm clearly placing the blame on the systems yeah. that have been um, alienating and oppressive and violent. Mm-hmm towards people of color in nature spaces and not saying that um, there are not rich connections to nature mm-hmm. in um, communities of color. Mm-hmm. But I guess back to the, the, I guess the, the topic of uh, this conversation, which is thinking about climate negotiations. Um, right. I, I think that is one of the areas I agree with you that it is one of the areas that I think is under discussed when it comes to thinking about climate change. Right. I mean, I think this goes to like, some broader trends that like are related to climate change, like urbanization or like uh, shifting of agricultural practices, or just even like kind of threats to agriculture posed by climate change and thinking about what that means for uh, indigenous communities. Right. So like uh, outside the United States, the vast majority of indigenous communities are subsistence farmers, right? Uh, Subsistence farming is going to be something that's very, different in the future with climate change or something that might not be possible with climate change. And then that's going to lead to folks being great further alienated from the land. Yeah. Yeah. That's a really good point. Yeah. So no, I I do think it's deeply important and I think it is deeply important just to, to, right. I, I think often with climate change, it seems to me that the, the problem isn't one of the technical, right. It's not a technical problem. It's not an engineering problem. Like I think we have the technology to to have substantially less impactful lifestyles i think it's the uh the willingness for folks to live differently right so that we're we're not we're not uh so kind of willing to accept uh the emissions right like uh, you know yeah yeah, I think that, I mean, change is hard. It's hard to give things up that are things that you, um, you know, 
have grown up with and have just integrated into your lifestyle. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's hard for everybody to make those changes. Um, and of course, we're not going to get to where we need to be if we're only relying on individuals to make behavior changes. Right. I want to be perfectly clear that we we got to talk about the bigger culprits here. But um, but I also want to think about <clears throat> the fact that um, oh, I totally lost my train of thought. <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> I mean, I, yeah. So I think right. Like I agree with the with the individual, right? But I think what what individuals might need to do is to be less willing to accept status quo, right? Or at least Oh, to, to not question status quo. Yes, that's true. And what I was going to say was that um, I think it's if, if you overlay sort of the white supremacy lens on this, mm-hmm. we know that it is hard to give up power. Um, and so when we talk about things like what needs to change in our country mm-hmm. to um, address our race problem, mm-hmm. Um, part of the problem is that white people don't necessarily want to give up power. Mm-hmm. Um, they, a lot of people don't have any trouble with, um, uh, BIPOC communities achieving success or, you know, whatever it might be, as long as they don't have to give up power yeah. or give up their resources or distribute wealth or, you know, that sort of thing. And so when we are talking about. Or give up representation, yeah. yeah. Um, so when we talk about um, things like the developed world taking a quote-unquote disproportionate responsibility and making a disproportionate sacrifice mm. um, to climate change adaptation or intervention, I, it sort of triggers people who have this, you know, well, I don't. I don't want to have to give up or I don't want my country to have to give up anything. It's fine for others to succeed. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, I, I want to hold on to <laughs> what we have. Right. So I think that's the nature of power dynamics well, and it's intertwined with white supremacy. And, that, and I think, again, right, this is a, an instance where I actually think human engagement with nature and having more kind of conscientious relationships with nature helps, right? Like uh, I think right now, if you're not, appropriately valuing nature and appropriately like an engaging and participating with nature or like wild spaces, uh, non-built spaces, non sort of like economically like uh, productive spaces. One might feel like one's giving things up in making a change. Right. But if, you know, one appreciates sort of the non-productive, like non-economically productive elements of nature uh, and the environment, it might seem less like, you know, I'm sacrificing and more just like, well, you know, I'm just going to kind of attend to this different value more. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You're reminding me that, um, one, there are models, more than metaphors, maybe models is the right word, I'm not sure, in nature that we can learn from mm-hmm. that help us understand how it doesn't have to be a zero-sum game. Mm-hmm. And that by collaborating, creating sort of symbiotic relationships, for example, um, the sum can be greater, the whole can be greater than the sum of the parts. Mm. And it doesn't mean that if, you know, somebody else wins, I lose, Mm. you know, kind of thing. And, you know, going back to our first conversations on our previous podcast about participatory research and just the idea of participatory processes, I'm just reminded that those sorts of um, 
participatory processes, whether they be in the context of research or, you know, engagement, you know, of the citizenry or, or whatever, are, are models of this, the whole is greater than the sum of the parts, right. and it's not a zero-sum game. Right. And I think we, we have a lot to learn from both nature-based models and metaphors, as well as participatory research models mm-hmm. that could help us achieve what you were just talking about. Yeah, and, well, and you know, participative, participatory uh, right, models of research are would be informative or thinking about how to have more equitable, more representative, and sort of more robust uh, negotiation, right? It's like it struck me when you were talking about Glasgow that the one of the, the the reasons why some of the things that were so deeply of interest for like the folks in the pavilion not making it into uh, the actual negotiations was just that it wasn't a partic- particular participatory sort of uh, negotiation, right? Like um, there. I don't think it didn't seem to me to be uh, appropriately uh, there wasn't an appropriate thought in how to ensure that like folks were well represented to, to ensure that we had a comprehensive and complete conversation uh, to have a right, like kind of a, a broad uh, sense of the, the actual values at stake or the, the, you know, the costs and benefits at stake. Yeah. Yeah. And at the same time, like, I want to be fair that there have been vast improvements, sure. I believe, from prior cops wasn't at those. But what I what I have read and I've tried to be balanced in, you know, my sources of, <laughs> of information um, in how people were interpreting the outcomes of and the process of cop. Mm-hmm. You know, we certainly heard disgruntlement um, and legitimate concern from um, some sectors that were feeling like they were not adequately represented or their voices were not being heard. Mm-hmm. And then we also heard um, legitimate, like there can be two truths, right? right. That, you know, it's also true that um, much more attention was being paid to these issues than in prior, prior cops. Right. Um, so progress is being made. We just need to make it a whole lot faster. Right. Well, I mean, <laughs> and I think the, yeah, no, I was going to say that just seems to be the case with everything when it comes to climate change, right? Like, um, climate, yeah. climate change is like a tree, right? Uh, or climate change uh, strategies for addressing climate change, change, I should say, are like a tree, right? It would have been good. The best time to, to have engaged them was like, or planted them was 20 years ago. Yeah. The next best time is today. <laughs> right, right. Yes, exactly. So, yeah. you know, an example of that, I think, is, um, you know, the the young people had a a caucus essentially that had been engaged throughout the year and Mm -hmm. had developed statements and sets of priorities um, that they were advocating for that were being heard, I think, by the um, leadership of COP and um, the negotiating uh, parties. But how much... um, I guess in some ways it's it's easier to utilize the developing nations um, as a um, a better example um, where we didn't see a lot of binding agreement around some of the things that were most important to um, mm-hmm. developing countries and indigenous peoples. Um, yet it was a, a topic of a lot of conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, so iterative iterative improvements. Still wanting to see. Um, you know, put our money where our mouth is, you know, kind of outcomes. Mm-hmm. Well, 
Yeah. And I, yeah, I just had a super random thought when we were talking. Uh, I mean, and iterative, iterative improvements, even if they might not happen at the pace they might necessarily have to for climate change, are still improvements, right? Like, mm-hmm. even if we sort of, like, end up having kind of really terrible time when it comes to climate change, the right the improvements in the ways that we relate to one another that come out of the climate uh negotiation process if they stick are still going to be something that's worth having right like if we have more equitable negotiation even if it happens too late to uh uh right address some of the worst climate problems hopefully would would you know kind of spread out and perhaps you know help us uh govern better in the future as an international yeah. community. Yeah, like that fourth goal that I talked about at the beginning of the podcast about enhancing international collaboration. And yeah. that had been talked about as the way to get to all of the other goals for COP. I mean, it mm-hmm. it's not just a means to an end. It is um, or the means to the end of COP26. It is a long-lasting mm-hmm. uh positive outcome when something like Mm -hmm. the u.s and china despite political disagreements can say we're going to work together around climate um Mm. that that is a success in and of itself yeah i mean i suppose right if there is a bright side to climate change it'll force us to get along better well yeah yeah, we hope right (laughs) (laughs) i mean yeah either make things really much worse or (laughs) hopefully a little better yeah but it really you know it's I always go back to systems thinking. It really points out how all of this is part of a larger system. We can't have the climate conversations without recognizing that these are embedded in conversations that are about global economics that have, you know, less to do with climate mm-hmm. or uh, social, you know, rights, you know, human mm-hmm. rights conversations, or you know, whatever the other topics might be, mm-hmm. um, those things will impact our ability to work together around climate, mm-hmm. and our ability to work together around climate is likely to impact our ability to do these other things together. It's like we're mm-hmm. not, we can't compartmentalize ourselves um, uh, and just say, well, that was, you know that happened over there, that was a different set of negotiators or whatever. Mm. It's all interconnected. Um, But at the same time, if we have success in one realm, Mm -hmm. um, we might be able to parlay that into success in the climate realm. Yeah. Or vice versa. Well, I mean, it strikes me with climate change uh, forces change and it's either going to be a virtuous cycle of change or a vicious cycle of change. And it's just up to us to choose which one. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, the change is unavoidable. It's just which path we have changed we're taking. And reality will probably be a bit of a mixed bag, yeah. you know, a little of both. <laughs> no, that's probably true. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, I guess we reached sort of at the end of the things I want to ask you about. Was, and so, like always, I want to close off by asking, is there anything <laughs> that you want to talk about that we haven't gotten to yet? Um, well, gosh, I feel like I covered a lot of the things that I really wanted to um, to talk about. I think... I guess the one thing that um, I just want to put out there to to listeners is that it's so easy to think about COP as being this punctuating event, like it happens once a year, mm-hmm. unless you have a pandemic <laughs> um, <laughs> where we skip one. But you know, it's this once a year big conversation. There's a lot of media, you know, attention around it. All of a mm-hmm. sudden, all of the media outlets are talking about climate and. And then, you know, the conversation dies down a little bit. Um, 
and that can't that can't happen right we need to keep the conversation going we need to keep the pressure on mm-hmm. um and not let this just sort of fade into the background mm-hmm. um and so what what can we do um to essentially follow up on the successes and address some of the shortcomings of COP26 throughout the year in our own localized, you know, sort of ways. Mm-hmm. And I guess one of the ways that I think about that, because I do work in um, kind of this intersection of nature and education mm-hmm. at various levels of education, um, I think about the ways that in our throughout our formal and our informal educational systems from daycare and preschool through, you know, college and graduate school and, you know, uh, professional education and education of the public, how can we link people's understanding of climate um, to systems thinking? Mm -hmm. And how can we link it to, um, you know, I'll go back to my personal passion about that human nature connection as a long-term climate strategy. I think about that systems thinking thing that can happen in so many different venues. Um, We can, we can in developmentally appropriate ways and in ways that are specific to topics that we might be discussing or educating about, we can insert systems thinking into those. Mm-hmm. Um, I think you can do it at the youngest ages. You can do it um, about almost any topic, whether it's environmental or climate specific or something that you know is a social issue or whatever it might be. Everything has a systems component to it. Mm-hmm. Nothing is in isolation. So how can we use all sorts of venues, um, all sorts of courses in universities and, you know, all sorts of informal education um, approaches, as well as our, you know, subject matter um, curricula in K through college to really help people become critical thinkers and systems thinkers. That is a prerequisite for being able to tackle these big conversations and to have the right lenses Mm -hmm. and critical thinking skill sets to have uh, these conversations and make the right decisions. Um, and then I think about like, how can we utilize the places where we are? Mm-hmm. Are we in our homes? Are we in schools? Are we in campuses? Are we in government uh, buildings? How can we utilize the places we are mm-hmm. to adopt mitigation and adaptation strategies on site. Mm-hmm. You know, how can we electrify everything we can electrify um, and use renewable energy, you know, to power um, those um, electrified um, mechanisms? How can we deal with stormwater management? How mm-hmm. can we be creating pollinator uh, habitat biodiversity in those places? Mm-hmm. How can we be creating carbon sinks like trees? Um, and then utilizing those on-site interventions, which are physical, tangible, visible, to teach about climate change and these interconnected systems. Mm-hmm. So we're we're doing an actual mitigation or adaptation intervention, and then we're also using that as the fodder for an educational strategy. Mm. Um, and yeah, I, I feel like I always go back to this idea of 
it's an all hands on deck time and it has mm-hmm. been an all hands on deck time for a couple of decades around the climate emergency and i don't know necessarily of a single person or discipline or job category that mm-hmm. couldn't somehow in either one's personal life or professional life contribute mm-hmm. in some way to translating the priorities that come out of COP um, and the failures that come out of a COP um, mm-hmm. into change, local, on the ground, um, site-specific, personal life-specific, um, advocacy for policy change, you know, whatever it might be, we can keep the conversation going. We can keep the iterative improvements going mm-hmm. and not just wait to hear what happens with COP27. Mm-hmm. Well, and it also strikes me, uh, right, that last bit that you said about, right, everybody has a role to play. That is also an opportunity for us and a call for us to think more about how we work together, how we converse better, how we have discourse better, how we listen better to one another. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, I agree. This sounds like a great place for us to close. So thank you again for being on the show. Yeah, thanks, Clement. Thank you for listening to Just Sustainability. If you've enjoyed what you heard, please support this podcast by subscribing and leaving a review. Just Sustainability is recorded with the support of the Institute in the Environment at the University of Minnesota. In particular, I want to thank Peter Levin and Beth Mercer-Taylor for all their help with this show. All the music on Just Sustainability is composed and recorded by Clifton Nesseth, and all the artwork was created by Kristen Nesseth. Thank you again for listening.